pray with me again, please. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to serve a risen Savior, to have a God who loves us so much that severance, that separation was not an option for you, that you sacrificed yourself, your eternal glory and prestige to become a man, Lord Jesus, and to dwell amongst men. Not sacrificing at all your deity, but taking on the image of a man and you became like us. You were crucified, you were buried, and you were resurrected. And so, Lord God, we give you praise because you have seen fit to reconcile us to yourself. And now you have a claim on our life. And I pray that as we open your word, I pray that we would see very clearly what that claim is and might respond to you today. Speak through your word, Lord God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. One of the things that uh, you'll notice about uh, sort of English royal history is that when there is a strong uh, sort of king or queen, uh, things go pretty well. And when there's not one, things go fairly poorly. And when there's a strong king or queen, that era typically gets named after that monarch. One in particular would be Queen Victoria. Victoria, up until recently, was the longest reigning monarch of England. She's been replaced by Elizabeth II. And she reigned from the mid-1830s up until about around 1900. And her reign was marked uh, by what we call the Victorian era. And there are things that are associated with the title Victorian that have nothing to do with her. There's Victorian fashion and style of dress. There's Victorian furniture and architecture. There's Victorian morals which I think we would find very comfortable. You act one way on the outside and you're a terrible person on the inside. Just kidding. But when a, when a ruler, a king or a queen, is so influential and so dominating, things begin to take on a life of their own after that monarch. But when there's not a king or queen in a monarchy that's not a strong ruler, it kind of spins out of control. It creates chaos. And oftentimes, a civil wars can break out. People can begin to serve other kings, pretenders to the throne, supplanting. Stability is lost. I think you'll find in your life, and, and I find this in my own life, that, that I have a lot of people and, and things competing for my attention, competing for my loyalty. I find a lot of things, I don't have sort of one central ruler of my life. I'm, I'm, I'm dominated by my job, or maybe you're dominated by your relationship, or maybe you're dominated by uh, your physical health, and, and you kind of serve that for a while, and then once that gets under control, you then bounce to another thing. Your loyalties constantly shift from whatever is the most demanding, whatever gives you the most comfort, whatever gives you the most pleasure, whatever gives you the most success. It's very hard to find sort of that central ruler. We're continuing on in a series called This Jesus, where we're looking at Scripture and talking about who Jesus really is based on Scripture. And this week we're going to see that Jesus is Lord. And my, what I want to put forward to you today is that if Jesus becomes that strong central monarch in your life, you'll no longer have this anarchy and chaos in your life. You won't have to serve these other masters, but rather they'll be put in their proper place in subservience to him. So what a lot of people might do with this passage, it's Acts chapter 2, verse 36 to 47. They might concentrate on Acts 2.42 where you talk about the church, and we're going to get there. But I want to back up a little bit. I want to cover a little bit of the ground we covered last week. And I want us to talk about why Jesus has a legitimate claim to rule in our life. 
And I want us to talk about what that should do for us just as a people, and then what do we actually do with this as a community, okay? So the first thing is that Jesus is king. I'm going to use king and Lord interchangeably. Jesus is king. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is wrapping up kind of the first sermon ever preached in the church. He's wrapping up this sermon and he's telling everybody, I've proven this claim to you. I've shown you that Jesus is the Messiah and you need to now have a response. So I want us to look at the three sort of clauses or phrases in this text to look at what Jesus actually is saying to us based on the fact that he is king. The first clause is, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Jesus has proven his claim. We know for certain. So every ruler has a, a, a responsibility to prove that they are a legitimate ruler. Every monarchy has laws of succession that says this is who the next king is going to be or the next queen, and if it's not that person, it's going to be this person, and so on and so forth. In some countries, it's uh, the oldest male heir inherits the throne. This is how medieval France was. In some countries, like modern-day United Kingdom, it's whoever is the oldest uh, child of the king or queen. Whatever you had, whatever your succession plan was, you had to prove, usually by blood, usually by the king or queen claiming you as their own child, that's how you proved you had a right to rule. Luke, in his gospel, and Luke is also the writer of the book of Acts, has made a claim that Jesus is Lord in Christ. What this means is that Jesus is the heir of the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that David's gonna have a man rule on the throne of Israel forever. This is the Messiah that they're looking for. And so Luke in his gospel has worked really hard to prove this claim, that Jesus has lineage from David biologically. In Luke chapter one, he talks about Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, being of the house of David. And you might say, well, that's adopted, that's not biological. Much the same in our day, it was in the ancient world where adopted children were considered fully legitimate members of the family and people could inherit through adopted children. Augustus Caesar was the adopted child of Julius Caesar. They were not, they were blood related. He was his nephew. In Luke chapter two, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, to fulfill prophecy and connect him again with David. In Luke chapter 3, after Jesus' baptism, Luke actually goes through the hard work of doing a genealogy, tracing Jesus back, not just to David, but all the way back to Adam. In Luke chapter 4, Satan challenges Jesus by saying, if you're the son of God, prove it. And Jesus proves it not in the way that Satan wants. Jesus proves it by resisting the temptations. And it continues like this throughout Luke's gospel. Peter confesses him as the Christ, which is the Greek way of saying, you're the Messiah, you're the heir of David. There's a blind man that calls Jesus, Jesus, son of David. And this carries over into Peter's sermon. He has worked really hard to prove in this sermon, like we talked about last week, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is promised. All of Luke's gospel and all of Peter's sermon is making this claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament, and he is the one to come that was promised to David. And so he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Jesus has proven his claim to rule and to reign. He's Lord. He's king. 
But it's not just that he's claimed his title, That's, or, or it's not just that he's proven his right to rule, he's also claimed his title. Look at verse 36. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So it's not just enough to be the next in line, you have to actually want to rule, you have to uh, ascend to the throne, and this hasn't always been the case. Edward VIII in the 1930s was the next king in line. He was after George V, and Edward VIII had fallen in love, and he'd fallen in love with an American heiress named Wallace Simpson. Miss Simpson was, was a socialite and was, was, was a nice person, I guess, but she was divorced. And according to the law at the time, the king could not marry a divorced woman. And so he had to choose. Do I choose love? Do I choose my people, right? It sounds like a Disney movie. And Edward VIII, after ruling for about 350 some odd days, decided I'm gonna follow my heart. And he abdicates the throne. George VI becomes king, who is the father of our, the current queen. I was about to say our current queen. No, there's a revolution in there. The current queen, Elizabeth II. Jesus is not Edward VIII. He has followed his heart and his heart is to serve God and to love his people. His heart has led him to claim his title as Lord. In Luke chapter 4, when he begins his ministry, Jesus reads Isaiah 61, which is a messianic prophecy, and that means it's a prophecy about the Messiah. And it talks about all the things that are going to happen when the Messiah shows up. And Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, meaning I'm the one to come. This is me. I'm claiming my title. Demons profess him as the son of God. And Jesus doesn't correct them. He just says, meh, don't tell anybody for right now. It's not time yet. The religious leaders ask him if he's the son of God. And he says, you guys say so. You said it. Pilate accuses him of being king of the Jews to which he agrees. And when Peter says he is the son of God, when he confesses him as the Christ, Jesus then moves into, okay, this is what I'm going to do. He moves into suffering his death and his resurrection. So now that Peter knows this is who you are, this is who the Christ is, let me tell you what the Christ, what the king is going to do. He has claimed his title. He's claimed it. And what's more than this, God the Father's also claimed him as his son. When Jesus is baptized, the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. What's more than that, when Jesus makes the claim to be the Messiah, when he makes the claim to be the son of God, if he's wrong, he's lying and he's blaspheming, which are both sins. And so if he dies, he shouldn't be resurrected. But because he was right in those claims, God says, nope, you're my son and you are perfect. And he raises him from the dead. And this isn't an adoption, okay? Jesus is not adopted. He wasn't a good man that God thought, you know what, I need a, I need a son. I'm going to adopt this man, Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus is the son of God. Son of God co-equal in power and glory with the Father and with the Spirit. He's pre-existent. Jesus has every single right to rule and reign over us. And he has been since the beginning. Since before creation, he has been ruling and reigning. But now he has the right because he's created us and he has the right because he has rescued us. He's proven his claim and he's claimed his throne. So what happened? We'll look at verse 36. This Jesus whom you crucified... We've rebelled. We have rebelled. Sometimes when a king makes a claim to the throne, there are people who are like, eh, we don't really want to serve you. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to pass. They either think his claim is tenuous, 
They think that he wouldn't be an effective leader. Or they think, you know what, there's somebody else that's going to help me out. We're going to rebel. One of the most famous instances in English history is the Wars of the Roses. Houses of York versus the House of Lancaster, right? One of the most famous episodes in that is Richard III, who was the House of York. And he had taken the throne. And he's portrayed by Shakespeare in, in, in Richard III as this terrible human being, which he might have been. We don't really know. But we know that his nephews, who were the right rulers from the House of Lancaster, were actually killed. Somehow, some way, we don't really know what happened. But it's this violent period in history where, where kings and factions were warring against one another because there was rebellion. And we would like to think that we wouldn't be like the religious leaders who identified just like maybe Richard III said, nah, I think I could do a better job than that. The religious leaders and Judas looked at Jesus and thought, you know what, I don't know. Like maybe you've proven your claim, but you're not the kind of Messiah that we want, so we're going to get rid of you. And like I said, we'd like to think that maybe, just maybe, we wouldn't be like that. But the problem is we put pretenders to the throne up all the time in our life. That's what leads to the chaos in our lives. That's what leads to the anarchy. That's what leads to this feeling of just overwhelming thought. There's just so much to do and keep track of. We set up pretenders to the throne all the time. We usurp Jesus' rightful place to rule and reign. We put success on the throne. And so we worship accolades, climbing the ladder, titles above the advancement of Jesus' kingdom. We put materialism on the throne. And we fill this void in our lives with stuff. That void that you're trying to fill is where Jesus is supposed to go. That's his throne in your life. And instead we put stuff and money and houses and clothes and cars We put a pretender on the throne. We put comfort and happiness on the throne. We put relationships on the throne. We think if our family is good or if our marriage is good or if we have a significant other, then everything else is going to be okay. Whatever's on the throne in your life is whatever everything else orbits around. If you want to know what your life is about, look at what your life is sort of organized around, what the most important thing is, what you drop everything for. These are exactly the kinds of things that the religious leaders put up. This is the exact same things that the religious leaders put up and said, we value these things over the real king, over the real Messiah. And do you know what kings do to rebellious subjects? It's not good. But that's not what our king does. That's not how our king handles it. He dies for us rather than making us die for him. And because he dies for us, the king has created for himself a people. And that's the next thing I want us to see. Jesus is king, and the king has a people. The king has a people. Look at the response that the people have to Peter's sermon. Now, when they heard this, this is verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Naturally, everybody that's back to pretender to the throne, when you realize that your guy's not going to make it, you kind of begin to be like, okay, well, let me buddy up to the king. I'm a little nervous now. I'm a little scared. Because the king is able to issue out the severest of punishments for rebellion. And we are just as guilty as the religious leaders. We should be asking this question pretty much every time you come to the word of God, every time you encounter the risen Lord, you should ask the question, what shall I do? What shall I do? 
Jesus has brought conviction in my life. He's shown me something that's not right in my life. He's shown me a pretender to the throne that I'm serving. What shall I do? John Stott said this. I said this last week. I'll quote it again. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something that has been done by us. Jesus Christ was crucified, not, by, not just by religious leaders, but by me and by you as well. We've become enemies of God, enemies of the cross. And when you have enemies as a king, do you know what you do? You, can do, you, you get rid of your enemies. And you can do this one of two ways. You can neutralize them by killing them, imprisoning them, stripping them of their land and their title, or exiling them someplace far away. Or you can make them your allies. You can make them your friends. You can bring them in close. You can rule with them. And that's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus today wants to bring you into a relationship with him, a relationship of love, of encouragement, of hope, of joy, of peace. He wants to forgive you. And so I want us today to think of me, I want you to think of me, if you don't mind, uh, it might be a stretch, I don't know, as a royal ambassador. I'm from the king today, and I have a peace offer for you. I have a peace deal from the king of kings and the lord of lords. He wants to settle the war with you. And he has some generous terms. I don't want to go through them with you. The first thing is he wants to offer you complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. Look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When a rebellion takes place, sometimes those who have been in rebellion are asked to sign a public confession. This is designed to do a couple things. One, it's so that everybody knows that you know you were wrong and you are interested in changing that, that your loyalties have shifted towards the rightful ruler. And it's also so that the entire kingdom knows that you've been forgiven. Because if you get pulled into a room with the, with the rightful king and he says, hey man, I forgive you and you're good, but I'm not going to tell anybody about this because I don't know, then you're on unsteady ground. So what Jesus is, or what Peter is calling his audience to do then, and I think we're being called to do today as well, is there's this idea of repentance, this idea of confession and repentance that should be a part of our walk with Christ. Admitting the areas where we've rebelled and confessing it, and sometimes that means a public confession. And when I say public, I don't mean necessarily standing up here in front telling everybody what you've done wrong. But maybe confessing to friends, to fellow believers that can hold you accountable. If you've never accepted Christ, if you've never asked for forgiveness from Christ before, then there's another step for you as well. There's the opportunity to get baptized. Now, being baptized doesn't save you. It doesn't make you right with the king. That's already happened when you've asked for forgiveness, when you've confessed what you've done and you put your trust in him and his person and his work. But what it does, it's the public part of the confession. It's the part where you stand up in front of the rest of the kingdom and you say, I was wrong and I now want to be identified with the rightful ruler in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so you go into the water and you come back up. That's why they're called to baptism. The offer comes today for you to repent. To look at the false kings that we've served, the pretenders to the throne that we've put up and said, I'm not serving you anymore. There's a better king. There's a more gracious king. There's a king who says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And all you have to do is come to him and seek forgiveness. And you might say, well, Travis, what do I need forgiveness for? 
What about every time you've had hatred in your heart and you've lashed out at somebody or you've harbored bitterness? That is a violation against the laws of the kingdom. And that's rebellion against the king and he wants to forgive you for that. Every time you've desired something and you've manipulated and coerced to get that thing that you want, that is a violation of the laws of the kingdom and he wants to forgive you for that. For every time you've placed material possessions and success above the well-being of others and the good of the kingdom, that's rebellion and he wants to forgive you for that. All that's required is that you recognize that there are things in your life and in your heart, that your heart is bent towards rebellion, what the Bible calls sin. And that that puts you at odds with the king. And that there's a penalty for those acts of rebellion. And typically, like I said, when you are penalized for your acts of rebellion by the king, you're stripped of title, you're thrown in prison, you're killed, and you're cast away. But that's not what happens to us, to the followers of Jesus Christ. Instead, he's the one that takes that spot for us. Jesus was stripped. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was thrown in prison. Jesus was executed. On our behalf, you don't have to suffer the consequences of your rebellion. You can put your faith and trust in Christ today. But you have to come to him on his terms. These are the terms of the king. And this is not a negotiation. You don't get to come back to him and say, well, Jesus, I appreciate it. I like that. But I'd really like to try and earn my way because I don't want to be in debt to anybody. I'm a self-made person. That doesn't work. This is not a negotiation. These are the king's terms. And he offers us forgiveness. But he also offers us a gift. He offers us a gift. Verse 38. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You don't just get the offer of forgiveness and then the king says to you, you know what, I forgive you, you can stay in the kingdom, but you better go to a corner of the kingdom that's not nice and I don't ever want to see you again. That's not how Jesus handles us. He actually gives us a gift. It's a gift that's been promised And it's been promised to us so that we might never rebel against him again. And Peter tells us that this is a fulfillment of a promise, and it's the Holy Spirit. Now, the promise of the Holy Spirit is made in many places in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36, and in Joel 2. But I want us to look at Isaiah, or sorry, Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 11, 19, it'll be on the screen. Ezekiel 11, 19 is a prophecy about the Spirit, and it says, I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is what the gift entails. One, we'll no longer have a hard heart towards God. When you're in rebellion against the king, you have a hard heart. You don't want to submit. And so the Holy Spirit, when he begins to work in our life for the first time, you begin to be warm to the idea of the things of God. You begin to turn towards the things that you've once found ridiculous. You now find acceptable. You find it exciting. You find that the Lord Jesus is your king. You have a heart of flesh. And this allows you to obey. And this is not mindless obedience. Jesus doesn't want a bunch of Uh, drones that just serve him mindlessly. This creates passion and zeal in your life. The spirit stokes a fire within you. It allows you to respond to his overtures in peace and love. 
And this is a great part. It says that we will be his people and he will be our God. There's intimacy here. There's fellowship here. Jesus doesn't just invite you into the kingdom. By the power of his spirit, he's inviting you into the kingdom. And then he's inviting you to come and stay at the palace. And what's more than that, he wants you to dine at his table all the time, as much as you want. You can come and fellowship with the king. You are offered peace with God. And it's not to hold you at arm's length. It's to bring you close, to hold you close. Notice verse 39. It says, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Now, that's a geographical far off. But the image is still the same. Jesus doesn't want anybody to be far away from him. He wants you to draw close through faith and repentance. This comes through faith that the Holy Spirit is going to work. God is going to work through him to shape in you and mold you to make us more like the loyal servants of the king once we come to Christ. What's better than this, even if things could get better, you then become a person of the kingdom. You get elevated. And so the things of your life become royal kingdom matters. The things that you were once concerned about and worry about aren't just minor details anymore. They are great important matters that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords takes a vested interest in. So that job that seems to, seems to give you a hard time or that creates frustration or that boss that gives you a hard time, Jesus now has a vested interest in the way that you respond. Jesus wants you to create a, an environment of flourishing and fellowship at your work. It's not all about productivity anymore. Your marriage is no longer a marriage that's there to make you happy and your spouse happy. The marriage gets elevated to kingdom business, which means that it should proclaim the good news of the kingdom, the gospel to the world around you through forgiveness, through mercy, through grace, through sticking through things when they're hard. That test that you have tomorrow, kids, that you have not yet studied for. I know. You got all afternoon, it's okay. That is now a kingdom matter because if you do not study, you might be tempted to cheat. And cheating doesn't just become about getting a good grade or passing. It becomes a matter of the kingdom where a failing grade is more acceptable than a smudge on the honor of your king. Everything, there's no sacred and secular divide. And that's what he goes on to tell us. He tells us that we have a place in his kingdom. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, you already have a place in God's kingdom. But that also means that you have to separate yourself from other kingdoms, you don't get dual citizenship. You have to separate yourself from this crooked generation. Now, that doesn't mean that all of culture and society is bad. What it does mean is that we need to be distinct. As kingdom people, we need to be distinct human beings. People needed to be able to identify the fact that we are followers of Jesus. When you meet somebody from another country, they typically have different mannerisms, maybe a different accent. Every time I've rehearsed this sermon, I tried to do one, and it's terrible, but just pretend that I'm doing an accent right now. There is something distinct about them that you can say in, in fine Texan fashion, you ain't from around here, are you? In the same way, the people that you walk around with on a daily basis, your coworkers, your family that doesn't know the Lord, anybody that is outside the kingdom should be saying, 
there's something about you that's different. There's an accent. There's a value system. There's a cultural shift. You can't be a loyalist and a rebel at the same time. You can't fly the flag of the king and harbor rebellion in your heart. There has to be something different. And you have to embrace this today. This is a great offer. You have been offered forgiveness for rebellion. You've been offered a gift to draw you close. And you've been offered a position in the kingdom where you're elevated to rule and reign with Christ. And if I can say bluntly and honestly, if you have not accepted this deal in your life, you are a fool. It is a great deal. And it is a deal that the King of Kings will offer to you every single day until you take it or you die. Don't leave this place without taking this deal. If you've never taken it before, don't leave this place. And if you don't know what what to do, if you don't know how to do that, you can come to the next steps room. You can come and speak with me. I'll love to talk you through it. I'll do my best to make it clear. Don't reject this offer. But this isn't all about us. It's nice that we're getting things out of this. It's nice that we're getting forgiveness and a gift and a place in the kingdom. But because we're people of the kingdom, we have obligations to the kingdom as well. We need to be people of the kingdom. We need to be people of the kingdom. Every kingdom has a culture. Now, culture is the collective customs, arts, institutions, and achievements of a people group. And the kingdom of Jesus is absolutely no different. There's a rhythm of us. There's an ethos to the culture of Christ. And Luke actually gives us a great snapshot of what this kingdom culture looks like. So if you've sat here today and you've been like, okay, Travis, I've accepted Christ. I have a relationship with him. I've accepted that peace deal a long time ago, maybe when I was a kid, maybe a few weeks ago. Or maybe you've said, I've been baptized. What's the next thing? What do I do? Well, this is what you do. We have to fully immerse ourselves in the kingdom culture, in the customs, in the arts, in the institutions and achievements of the kingdom of Christ. What does this look like? Well, we need to be devoted to the kingdom. The first thing we need to do is we need to be devoted to the kingdom. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves. That means to be passionately, zealously pursuing the things of the kingdom to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the early church is committed to Christ and they're committed to each other. So what does this do? Well, they get together to learn. Notice it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles teaching? What do you think they were teaching? They were teaching who Jesus was, what he said, what he did, how he died, how he was resurrected, and then what do we do with that? What are the ethics? What are the morals? What is the culture that we now have because of this? So they were devoted to it. If you're going to be a good citizen of the kingdom, you should be able to pass a citizenship test, right? You should know your history. The kingdom of God is no different. Now, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be able to uh, tell me the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism and everything else in between. But what you do need to be able to do is you need to tell me what you believe. What are the core things that you believe? You need to grow in your faith. You need to spend time in the word, not just by yourself, but in community. Because that's how we learn. The spirit of God is here when we're together, just like it's there with you when you're by yourself. But it's here and we can learn and grow from one another. It's the community of the spirit. So they got together to learn. We get together to learn. We also get together to share our commonality in Christ. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Fellowship means to share something in common, to have commonality. The thing they shared in common was Christ. Remember, this is at Pentecost. 
which means there, were, there was a Jewish audience primarily, and they were from all over the Roman Empire. So you had people from all different places. So even though they would be Jewish, they would also have different cultural flavors and flair. In the same way, you look at us across this room, we're not exactly the same. We have Christ in common, but I've said this before, I wouldn't know most of you and you wouldn't know me if not for this place. I'm not a lawyer, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a business person, I'd probably be teaching history somewhere. And that might be the only way that you would know me. We wouldn't know each other. And so we have this commonality in Christ. And so we need to come together in groups. If you're not a part of a group, again, what are we doing here? This isn't enough. This just coming to a service, it's not an opportunity to have fellowship with other believers. Being a medium-sized group, being a small group, any group that's rooted in celebrating Christ, not just a social club. If your group of friends that are believers get together and you never talk about Christ, is that a God-centered group? I don't know that it is. It's a group that's open, a group that wants other people to join. That's the way the early church was. So we get together to share our commonality in Christ. We also get together to live life. They devoted themselves to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. As I said, there's no sacred and secular divide in the kingdom. They were sharing meals together. They were eating together. They were going to common events. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We need to go to important events in each other's lives, like funerals and weddings and graduations. At the same time, we also need to get together regularly for just to be together. Get a meal with a friend. Go, go be with another believer. Talk to them. Share with them. One of the things that I'm trying to work on, and if you know me, this is a, a big step for me, I'm working on doing better about answering texts and emails because that's one of the ways in which that our community now functions, the way we have connectivity. And there's nothing worse for people in my generation and younger than no one responding to your text. It pretty much says, I don't care. Again, I'm working on it, so I do care about you. Please be gracious, work in progress. But we also get together to talk to the king. We get together to talk to the king and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the prayers. These aren't just praying by themselves. This is getting together. This is uh, praying regularly, probably in the temple area. And I think one of the reasons why we don't pray as a group, as a church, more as a body, is because we're not probably not praying a lot on our own. Prayer is important. It's another thing that I'm trying to become more devoted to in my life. We have opportunities to pray at our church. Sundays, you can pray with the Narthex Chapel in the, response, the Next Steps room at 8 a.m. Then you can come down to the Fellowship Hall at 8.30 if you want and pray with us there. There's Monday morning prayer from 10 to 12. There's Thursday prayer at 6 a.m. And then Thursdays at 8.30. If you want to come hang out with the staff, you can come hang out with us. That's when we pray in the Interstate 56 room uh, up in this building. Join us for prayer. Pray as a group. Let us be devoted to one another in prayer. So kingdom people care about the kingdom, but we also care about those outside the kingdom, the needs of others. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day those who were being saved. 
When people joined the early church, they had to leave behind businesses. They had to leave behind the safety and security of the Jewish faith. They had to leave things behind, and it created poverty in their life. So the, Jew, the, the early church is identifying specific needs, and in order to meet those needs, they are selling their goods. Kingdom people aren't just people focused on what's going on in their walls. They're focused on things that are outside their walls. And we have a unique challenge here at Park Cities because we have a, a variety of sets of walls. This sanctuary has walls that kind of makes us focused on what's just happening in this room. Just like the Great Hall and the gym also have walls that you can get kind of myopic. You can get kind of focused on what's just happening here. And what's really cool about this service, and one of the things that I love right now, is that we're growing. The service is growing, praise the Lord. But if you look around, we have some room to do that. This is a more spacious venue. But also the Lord is working in our Great Hall. And they are also growing in that venue and in that service. And they don't have the room that we have to grow. Now, I don't know what the solution is there. I'm not dropping anything to you and making you think. All I'm saying is at some point and some point soon, we are going to have to think about how to address that so that more people can come to know the Lord through that service. Again, I'm not holding on to anything. I don't have a solution. What I am saying is we need to begin to pray together about a solution to helping that service continue to grow as God blesses it. And I would say the same thing to them if this place was running out of space and room. We need to think about people outside of our walls. This is why we serve. This is why we give. This is why we're interested in a church up in Severance, Colorado. That again, we would have nothing to do with if not for the cause of Christ. But because of the cause of Christ, we are deeply invested in that church. And when you hear 10% of the people have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I heard people say, oh, there was like this groan or, or, or sigh of sadness and grief because we're looking beyond our walls. It's why we give. It's why we serve. It's why we send our students there. It's why we send our people all over the globe to tell people about the gospel. And you see this in verse 43 and in verse 47. People outside the church begin to take note about what's happening inside, and people were added to their community day by day. Do you know why this worship service ends? Some of you are like, because we have to eat lunch. I want to go to Luby's. I've never eaten at Luby's. I know I'm going to get an invite now. You know why this service ends? It's not for any of those reasons. It is because if we stay in here, what happens to those people out there? You are dismissed at the end of this service to go find people that do not know Jesus Christ and tell them about the good news of their king, that there is a king. You see their lives. You see the anarchy and the chaos of the variety of different kings that they're trying to serve. And you're sitting here with a Lord and a king that can give them stability and offer them forgiveness and grace and the gift of the spirit and a place in the kingdom. And we sit back there and we're like, mm. We become the royal ambassadors. We say, I've got an offer for you. And I think you'd be crazy not to take it. Evangelism comes from the great understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm going to close here and I'm going to pray. And we have talked a lot about how you might respond today. And one of the things that happens, and I've noticed it lately, is that when the sermon closes and people begin to pray, we, we like to slide out a little early. Get to the parking garage, again, get to the aforementioned lubies before the Methodists do. I get it, I do, I'm hungry too. But there are people here who are thinking about this offer from the King of Kings. They're thinking about Jesus' lordship in their life. 
And we don't want to distract them. We want to contribute to that process. I ask that you would pray for them. If you don't have anything to do with the Lord today, which I would hope that would be not the case, but I ask that you would pray for the people who do. That maybe we could devote ourselves to the prayers today and do it next week and the week after that and the week after that. And then we'll dismiss and we'll leave and then we'll come back and we'll bring more people with us and we'll bring more people with us and we'll bring more people with us, not because we're trying to add numbers to Park City's Baptist Church, but because we are trying to expand the kingdom of heaven to places that it has yet to go. Will you join me in that? Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, your people are ready. We have received from you a gift of the Spirit and he moves us and he pushes us and through his power we can accomplish the things that you've set up because we are not the ones doing it as our king working through us. And so Lord God, I ask that you would work through your people. I pray that you would help us to overthrow the pretenders to the throne that we've set up in our lives, those things and those objects and those people that maybe have ruled and reigned over us. Lord God, I pray that we would dethrone them today and that we would put you, our rightful king, over us. We might give you glory and honor and we might have that stability that we so desperately seek. Lord, do your work in us. Help us to come to know you if we don't. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, coming up uh, today,